But there are also times such as these Where we can no longer avoid conversations without contributing to the ease of privilege We cannot claim both sides We have to denounce the darkness of white supremacy We cannot play the neutral card We must confront sexism and homophobia We cannot just ignore the issue We must stand with the immigrant and the refugee we can no longer conform to the patterns of this world, but must be transformed by the renewing of our heart and mind and spirit. The same spirit that Jesus bore witness to. That same spirit that filled the first apostles. That same holy, heavy, life-giving spirit that filled homes 2,000 years ago and challenged men and women to stand up. Stand up to the powers that be. Call out the injustice with truth and grace. The same path we must now choose to embark. Embracing our label as followers of the way Turning the system upside down Confusing our enemies with strong love As we live and move and breathe in Jesus' name No longer slaves to the empire But free to be all we were intended to be God's kingdom colliding with earth in the shape of our hands And our feet Taking each blow It's in our weakness that we boast For we are the traitors We are the turncoats As uh, Def Jam recording artist BJ Skook made perfectly clear there, we are taking this season, the next two months, to step into a new series called The Reclamation Project, where together, collectively, we are in search of the love of Christ in a land of counterfeits. Trying to take seriously our call as a church. But before we get too serious, can I just linger a little bit longer on what happened this afternoon? And, I, and I, honestly, I'll be done then. I am... <laughs> So I've been trying to do, uh, like, write and, and put together sermons on Sundays as, like, a means of, of combating the perfectionists in me. You call it procrastination. I call it <laughs> formation. And so I just say it in the sense where there was not, I don't care if you looked high or low, there was not enough Adderall in all of the world that would have kept me focusing on this in the midst of what was happening in Louis. It was so beautiful to see the saints eliminated today, which is... <laughs> Something I never thought I'd say in a church, to be honest with you. <laughs> but it was so good. It didn't start out so great, though. And I got to tell you this, um, this story. So my four-year-old, Sawyer, uh, after the opening drive fumble, some of you are like, this is ridiculous, honey, get your things. I know, just wait it out. Fumble, I am like um, trying to control Lauren because she's having a meltdown. She's throwing things, <laughs> cursing people out. And, um, and I end up sitting back on the couch and... I sit down with Sawyer and I just told him the reality. I gave him a lay of the land. And I said to him, son, if you are going to continue to wear purple, you are going to live in a world of pain. <laughs> I have been alive for 34 years now and my heart has been battered and bruised in ways that I did not think were possible. It's been just an ugly, uh, and he turns to me. I don't know why he made it weird, but he says, dad, is God dead? <laughs> And I said, no, but it certainly will feel like it at times in this stretch. That's the path you are choosing to go on. Now, here's what I noticed, though, is that he was like wide-eyed, psyched about sitting down, watching this game. And, you know, part of the cost of maturation is that sobering up for you. You're not as excited. And he kind of like didn't watch a lot more of the game. And when I was driving into church tonight, I was just thinking, um, again, keeping in mind uh, Lauren's, Lauren's emotional outburst and I was thinking about how my experience 
of the purple in the past has dictated his expectations for the purple in the future. What I've gone through, I've kind of shaped what he will go through. Now, this is whiplash for you. I know this is, I know, it's not as easy as it looks to do these sermons, let me tell you. But so, <laughs> My question that we were wondering as we step into this new series is, when we think about church, the things that we are presenting to our children, when we think about Jesus, the things that we say about who Jesus was, who Jesus is, what Jesus means for us today. Is our experience of church and Jesus actually empowering and equipping our children for an expectation of a future worth fighting for? Are we setting them up for something that is beautiful? Is, are we building the kind of church that we want to last even when we no longer do? Those are big questions. But they're important questions because right now the church is not that. I had a friend this past week who, um, and I, he, I had a friend this past week, let's say this. Um, we went out to coffee and he said, you know, Matt, um, I no longer use the label for my life as a Christian anymore. You know, I grew up in the church and it's all I've ever known. This has been like my native tongue, but I, I don't use the label of Christian anymore. And it's not because he wasn't enamored or inspired by the liberating king. He's just become so depressed by the neutered church. He says, I see this gap between who Jesus was and who we presently are, and something's not right. Something's not working. And so I'd no longer use the label of Christian anymore. And I didn't try to twist his arm because I think that same battle is happening in me. I think I know enough of your stories where I think you feel it too. Where we've been on this path for so long that we sometimes forget to stop and ask, have we lost the plot? What are we doing? Why are we here? Like, why are we here? What is the purpose of church? If something has gone missing, then that something needs to be reclaimed. And so we asked that question. Uh, tonight, let's just play it out as like this is an announcement for the series where we're going. We're starting with Jesus, but we start with the question that asks, what is the purpose of the church? Now, I had a, a um, massive, raging 80th grandmother's birthday party last night. And I had some time with my grandpa, and I actually asked him, I said, Grandpa, you've, you've been... You know, you've been a Christian, you've worn that label on your life for so long. If I were to ask you, Grandpa Roger, what is the purpose of the church? He said to, to tell that old story of how Jesus died for the sins of the world. And when I thought about that, I thought that's, that's a pretty good answer right there. To tell that old story, to consistently gather together as a people, to reroute our stories in that story of Jesus dying for the sins of the world. I think that's a really good story, and I think that has a lot of weight. I think we should continue to tell the story about why and how Jesus died for the sins of the world, as long as we also tell the story about what Jesus was killed for. If we're going to talk about what Jesus died for, we also have to talk about what Jesus killed for, what Jesus was killed for. Jesus didn't kill anybody. Please delete that from the recording as soon as possible. <laughs> But I think it's important because what Jesus died for and what he was killed for 
Those were two very different things. Speaking of this, this rager I was at last night, um, there was this guy who spoke up in like an open mic moment and said to my grandma, said, I can't wait for the 90th birthday party in 10 years. And there was like a round of applause and it was awesome. That feels like a non-story, but I started to think about it on the way home and there's something to say about what that man said because it speaks to something that's in me. It speaks to this ideological system that says the highest priority in our life ought to be the preservation of our lives. The winners are the ones who stay alive the longest, which if that's the case would mean that Jesus is not a winner. Jesus is a loser because Jesus did not stay around very long. Jesus did not die in old age. He, he wasn't killed by a drunk driver. He didn't transition out of hospice care. Jesus was killed as an enemy of the state. Jesus was executed by an empire who perceived him to be a real and a viable threat to Roman interests in an occupied land. Jesus did not die because he walked on water or turned water into wine or he taught us how to love our enemies. Jesus died because he was the enemy. He was the problem for the people in power. He was lynched under the charge of treason because the government viewed him as an economic and spiritual and political threat to the order of the day. And that's strange because they, they don't say the same things about us. At least I'm not aware that they do. We don't seem to have the same teeth that Christ had in his time. Something seems to have gone missing. In fact, just this week, after our government killed a terroristic leader, I'm not getting into the merits of the killing, but after that took place, after this leader of a state was killed, executed, assassinated, use the language that you want, the leader of our government didn't go to church for accountability and a reminder to love, but rather for an endorsement and a round of applause. Jesus was the enemy of the state. We are the fan club. And you know, when you look at this photo and you consider the times that we're in right now, please understand that none of this is new. Injustice at the highest levels of government have been endorsed and condoned by theological malpractice since Constantine. This has been going on for a long time. The church has been at this for a while. But just because the practice is old, there are still new consequences, and we are feeling them in different ways right now. And one of those consequences is that the church has become impotent, as my friend laid out last week. We have become what, uh, what Tupac Shakur once said, ghetto mansions in the sky. They look pretty on the outside, but they don't do much for the neighborhood around them. I don't want that story to be our story. I don't want this expression of church that we have together, the merging of our stories into one story as the table family. I don't want us to be another church that found a way to grow large but forgot about the ways of love along the way. They forgot about the costly calling that Christ puts on our lives. I just don't want that. I'm not interested. So what will it look like for us to reclaim who Jesus actually was? What will it look like for us to embody who Jesus still is? 
There is a um, fear, I think, that happens. And maybe some of you are feeling it right now, so let me just name it for what it is. I think that when we get into a series like this, we have a cringe factor because there is so much people, so many people who are scared of, and justifiably so, the politicization, the politicization, the politicization, tizzy, of faith. Right? Are we getting political in sacred spots? As Jim Wallace says, as Debbie and I have said, this church, our aim is not to be partisan. It is not to drive you further left nor right, but to always drive us collectively deeper. We want to dive into the depths of things and actually, this has to matter. You know what I'm saying? And so one of the things that I think has been misplaced is, yes, we have a well-warranted fear of politics in the church in a politicized, I can't say that word, Sam, politicized faith. But I ought to think we should also have a fear of a depoliticized faith. Because if our private, personal faith does not actually impact our public life together, if we are not actually translating our beliefs into our body politic, then we are effectively just washing our hands like Pilate as we put a new crown of thorns on Christ's head. And the church cannot afford to keep playing this dumb, dumb game. And so we're going to spend the next two months and there's going to be people, if we do this right, who are going to feel like we're going to do something wrong. But life matters too much for us to sit on the sidelines, impotent, and denying the call of Christ on our life as a community and our lives as individuals. So tonight, I want to just give you an um, um, intro of sorts, because I just want to make it clear that we are starting with the person of Jesus. That is where we need to begin. That's where we need to end. If we're going to pursue justice, we need to be purposed by Jesus. If we're not actually connected to Jesus, we cannot actually cultivate justice. I don't believe it's possible. I've tried it. It doesn't work. The text that I went to is, I um, uh, want to show you, there's 10,000 different texts that I think would be ideal as an access point to this conversation. But the one that jumped out for me was in Mark 3. And it reads like this. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue. And there, a man with a shriveled hand was in the house. Some of them, that is the crowd who was present in the church at the time, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal them, heal him on the Sabbath. Did anybody else binge watch the new Netflix show, Messiah, this week? Like, did anybody else sit in their bed for five hours eating potato chips? No? Just Lauren? Okay. Let me just put that on a list of things to do because it's a beautiful show. And what happens in that show is that there is like when you have, be it a fake messianic figure or an actual one, rise up in our mix, the people that are in power start to cringe, start to look for ways for the, the, the trap to be set and the cheese to be bit so the person be taken out. That's exactly what's happening here. When you are in a system like the one at the time where the powers that be are pushing down and you have somebody from the margin that decides to push back up, how do we make that person be pushed out? This is the government tapping into King's lines. This is the government following and sending spies into Gandhi's camps. This is the story of Jesus. There's a quote that I've dropped many times in the past, but it's one of my favorite quotes by William Herzog, and he says, if Jesus would have just stayed out in the sticks and walked down water and, and, and healed blind eyes, that would have been fine and good. That would have all been congruent with the Roman pacification program. But when he decided to go into the places of power, 
When he decided to inch closer to the empire, that's when he became a problem. That's when he had to go. And so when you see Jesus moving into this place of power and you see, is he going to do something about the status quo that we have all conformed and now live by, people are on the edge of their seats, myself included. I told my wife this, um, there's been this beautiful thing that has happened in our church where we've had a lot of new stories that are coming in. But what I found in me as our church has grown larger has been this inclination, impulse to um, make our highest aim to keep people happy as opposed to actually bring about healing. And those are not the same things. I want to maintain the status quo. I don't want to turn over tables. I don't want to cause any problems. I want you to be happy. I want you to like church. I want you to like me. I want you to stay. Jesus seemed less interested in that. In fact, at the end of his life, he turns to his friends who, after all of his other friends have left, and he says, are you guys going to bounce too? Is this the end of the line for you as well? Jesus walks into this synagogue. There is a man who is sick in a system that is causing the sickness, and will he take the option of texting the guy saying, meet me out in the shadows later and I can heal you in private where it's a little more palatable, or will he do something about this right here and right now? Can he at least be covert on some level? He does not do that. Text tells us this. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, not go out and not quiet, not meet me in the shadows, not let's just keep it quiet and I'll take care of this real quick. He says to the man who is sick to stand up in front of the system of sickness. And then Jesus does what every good civil disobedience adherent has done. He, he raises the question. He doesn't just break the law for the sake of love. He calls the law givers to elevate their own sense of morality. He asks them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? to save life or to kill? Now that's a question that Jesus is asking here, but it's a question that was asked, asked a long time before him. This is really the Torah's initial direction when it's being sent. When the Deuteronomist sets out and Moses asks the people, what do you want to be about? You want to be about life or death, law or love? Which path are you actually going to choose? Jesus, in the center of power, brings a man forward who has been victimized by the center of power, makes him stand up in front of everybody. And he asks everybody around them, which path are you going to take? Life or death? Love or law? And the people didn't say anything. What will we say? When that falls on us, what will we say? What are we going to be about? Life and death? Or are we going to conform and fall asleep under the status quo where it's cozy and comfortable? Where we look pretty on the outside, but we're not doing much for the neighborhood. There's a reality here inside of this text 
at the core of Jesus' ministry, at the center of Jesus' mission is this idea, this drive to extend compassion to all people. Jesus was born during the festival of Sukkot, the, the, the feast for all nations. It is center to his story. But also notice that Jesus' version of compassion does not exclude confrontation. This is what jumped out at me when I read this text this week. Jesus understood that it's insufficient to suffer with those who are poor if we will refuse to speak to systems that are causing poverty. Jesus understood that if you are actually trying to set the captives free, then you're going to have to go after the captor's keys. Jesus understood that when he said, love your enemies, it did not mean the same thing as make no enemies. There is a nature to the place of the church in fidelity to Christ that doesn't just protect the sheep from the wolves outside. Sometimes the shepherds need to be the hunters. Sometimes the wolves need to be taken down. Sometimes systems need to be confronted. It has to transcend from charity to justice. So it's not just token acts that keep the status quo intact when you were called to have the problem presented in front of all people and saying, this stops here. Has to stop here. Do you want to be about law or love, death or life? What say you? Throughout this series, we want to ask eight different questions that we find Jesus asking or asked in the Gospels. Eight questions that we will uniquely identify as how do we answer life to this question right here? How do we be faithful to love in this theme right here? That's where we're going over the next two months. But I want to tell you something else, not just about what we're going to express on Sundays, but I want to tell you the biggest hurdle that's going to keep us from embodying this on Mondays and Tuesdays, on the in-between time when we're not surrounded in a room full of people who are still claiming the story of Christ. If you watch the story of Jesus, he makes this man stand up. And then the next scene, it says this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, when his family heard about this, his family, the people, think about your family. When they hear about what fidelity to Christ looks like in your life in context of the life that they raised in their life, what are they going to do about it? Here's what Jesus' family did about it. They wanted to take charge of him, put restraints on him, tell him to tone it down just a little bit. You're going a little too fast and a little too far. And they wanted to do this because they thought that boy was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind. They thought he had lost the plot. Because people were upset, their discernment led them to believe that Jesus was in the wrong, that Jesus was lost. See, we talk a lot about Jesus. I think that part of like the evangelical church especially has gone about this marketing program where Jesus for some churches is this big, you know, what's the word here? Like um, uh, strong, tough, masculine guy. For others, he is like the hip, sympathetic, empathetic. We have these lot of different versions. This is not a conservative problem. This is not a liberal problem. This is a church problem. We present Jesus as the one missing friend in your life that's going to fix all of your problems. But this text right here makes you wonder if you really want him as your friend. Because he's out of his mind. 
One of the biggest hurdles I think that will keep us from going beyond expressions of yes to love and towards the actual work of embodying it in the day-to-day grind is our fear of looking like we have gone crazy. Our fear of looking like we're rocking the boat, of being weird. I feel it in myself. I want to belong. I want to fit in. I don't want to stand out. But one of the first images that Mark gives to us of what Jesus looks like that ought to speak to us about what we are to look like is one that says that he is maladjusted to reality. Are you willing in saying yes to the call of Christ on your life? Are we willing in saying yes to the call of Christ on our community to get weird? Really, I mean that, to get weird. I was thinking about um, Walden Thoreau. He writes this about the status quo and about the weirdness of it all. And he says this, the greater part of what my neighbors call good, that is the not weird, I believe in my soul to be bad. And if I repent of anything, it is very likely to be my good behavior. What demon possessed me that I behaved so well? What have we gotten used to being around here? What have we gotten comfortable with? What have we conformed to the patterns of this world that are not actually consistent with the calling of Christ? What do we need to stray from? I want you to listen to this from King who speaks on this. Modern psychology has a word that is probably used more than any other word in psychology. It is the word maladjusted. It is the ringing cry of modern child psychology, maladjusted. Now, of course, we all want to live the well-adjusted life in order to avoid neurotic and schizophrenic personalities. But as I move toward my conclusion, I would like to say to you today, in a very honest manner, that there are some things in our society and some things in our world for which I'm proud to be maladjusted. And I call upon all men of goodwill to be maladjusted to these things until the good society is realized. I must honestly say to you that I never intend to adjust myself to racial segregation and discrimination. I never intend to adjust myself to religious bigotry. I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few and leave millions of God's children smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. What are you adjusted to that you shouldn't be adjusted to? What King understood, what Christ first saw when he steps into that temple and he sees a sick man and he wonders, should I break the law for the sake of love and heal that hand of his? He understood that truth is always in danger of being sacrificed on the altars of good taste and social stability. And those who are more afraid of disorder than they are of the disparities in our life together, that is where injustice and inequity is born. Are we willing to get weird and uncomfortable? Christ asked his followers to count the cost prior to saying yes. And tonight I'd ask you to do the same. 
is we don't want to mess around any further. We want to take seriously this call. We want our stories in the limited time that we have here to actually make a dent in the darkness outside and not just endorse whatever is happening. That's their problem. It's our problem. This is our life. What are we going to do about it? Who are we going to become for it? At the end of our days, will we lament all the time that we spent living in good behavior? Or will we look back and say we were faithful to Christ, even if it made us weird to the crowd? Will you pray with me? Jesus, God, you are good. You have been faithful. Give us the courage to return the favor. God, give us the courage to stand in places where we'd rather not stand, to speak up on things that we'd rather stay silent, to have enough backbone to actually not conform to the patterns of this world, but to be something bigger and better and wider and more whole. God, you are calling us towards this. We want to say yes, not just here, but tomorrow in all of our different places. We believe, God, that you are pulling us on this path. And we thank you for the gift of that call. In Christ's name, we all pray together. Amen. Reclaiming Jesus, following Jesus changes us. And like Matt said, when we're following Jesus, it makes us weird. It makes us different. It's not an easy path. But that's the thing that matters. We've talk a lot as a team over the last couple years when we felt the call to start up the church that um, if Jesus isn't at the center, if it isn't about Jesus, it just doesn't matter. And when it's about Jesus, it does. It calls us off the sidelines. It calls us to stand up and stand with. It calls us to care about the things that Jesus cared about, to stand with the people Jesus stood with, calls us to be different. And we are in community. We are committed. We're committed to choose love over law and life over death and to do that together. One of the ways that we follow Jesus, that we reclaim Jesus, that we stay connected to Jesus is when we take part in communion every Sunday night. The night before Jesus died, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. He took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood, shed for you. The new covenant, when you drink from this cup, remember me. So when we take the bread and we dip it into the cup, we're reminded that we are Jesus followers. When we take that bread and we dip it into the cup, we're reclaiming Jesus every single time we do that. And when we reclaim Jesus, we're reminded that we are not allowed to stand on the, sit on the sidelines. So during the music, we invite you up. The gluten-free elements will be in the front, the sides. 
so together, let's stand and we will pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. 